Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. Happy holidays, one and all. In honor of this festive time of the year, I thought it would be nice to take a look at the history of one of the holidays celebrated in December, uh, for the most part. Though a vast majority of the world celebrates Christmas in December, let's not forget another holiday, Hanukkah. Now, some people listening may think of Hanukkah as just Jewish Christmas, but that is a gross understatement of the holiday. Despite it actually being a relatively minor holiday in Judaism, the holiday commemorates an important event in Jewish history, the rededication of the Second Temple towards the beginning of the Maccabean Revolt. And if you don't know what the Second Temple or the Maccabean Revolt are, then you're in luck because that's what we're covering in this episode. Specifically, we're going to follow Judah Maccabeus, one of the leaders of the Maccabean Revolt, and his family as they help free his homeland and eventually help plant the seeds that would become the Hasmonean dynasty. I'll add in here that the Maccabean Revolt is detailed within the Christian Bible and 1st and 2nd Maccabees. These two books are considered canonical for Catholics and Orthodox Christians, but are not considered canonical in the Protestant churches or any branch of Judaism. We'll eventually also learn about the Hasmonean dynasty of Israel, and then take some time at the end of the episode to talk about how Hanukkah has developed over the years and is celebrated in the 21st century, especially when it comes to how it's been forced to market itself in countries like America. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Israel of the mid-2nd century BCE in The Hammer of Hanukkah. <laughs> As Hanukkah celebrates the rededication of the Second Temple of Jerusalem, let's learn a bit about the history of the Temple, both the First and Second Temples. The First Temple, more commonly known as Solomon's Temple, was said to have been built by the Hebrew King Solomon, son of King David. His rule is traditionally placed at some point in the 10th century BCE. Some apocryphal stories about Solomon say that he built the temple by invoking the power of demons using a magic ring given to him by the angel Michael. Not real or considered canonical by any religion, but still a cool story. In the actual biblical story and other Hebrew sources, it's said that people from the city of Tyre, who King David had befriended, helped the Jewish people construct the first temple. The exact location of the temple is actually unknown, though most sources and historians list it as being more or less in the same location as the second temple, which was built on the Temple Mount in modern-day Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire, then under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar II, during the siege of Jerusalem in July of either 587 or 586 BCE. This is remembered yearly on Tisha B'Av, a Jewish day of fasting and remembrance, which is actually a much more important day for the Jewish people than Hanukkah. The second temple was built about 70 years after the destruction of Solomon's temple. This temple was built after the Jewish people were allowed to return to Israel after their exile by the Babylonians. This exile was ended by the Achaemenid Persian Empire under the rule of Cyrus the Great, which is why at one point he was referred to as the Messiah. According to the original biblical story, the Second Temple was originally a fairly modest structure considering that it was built by people who had just returned to their homeland. It wouldn't be completely refurbished into the grand construct it was known to become until much later under the reign of Herod the Great, King Herod of New Testament infamy. 
and even though that would not happen until after the Maccabean Revolt, it's also important to know that the Second Temple would also be destroyed by the Romans. Its date of destruction also said to coincide with Tisha B'Av as those two events are remembered on the same day. But the Maccabees did not revolt against the Babylonians, Persians, or Romans. They would eventually come head to head with the Seleucid Empire. So who were the Seleucids? Well, they were originally part of the massive army of Alexander the Great. When Alex died, his massive empire was torn apart by his generals, each who thought of themselves as the true successor of their ruler. One of those generals was Seleucus I Nicator, who would go on to claim a vast majority of the land formerly occupied by the Persian Empire, specifically in Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. The Seleucids would eventually start claiming land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, which included the former Persian province of Yehud, aka the land known in English as Judea. The Persians had mostly let the Jewish people rule themselves as they pleased, as long as they recognized the fact that it was the Persians who held ultimate power at the end of the day. When the Macedonians entered the picture, they originally also let the Jews play by their own rules. However, Hellenization, meaning Greekifying, soon started to kick in. The Jewish people were expected to start speaking Greek and adopting Greek customs, such as worshipping Greek gods. While this was mostly kept to the upper classes in Jerusalem, it started spreading throughout the rest of Judea. It also didn't help that the Seleucids were constantly butting heads with Ptolemaic Egypt, another kingdom created by a general of Alexander the Great that was on the other border of Judea. So now, the Jewish people are in a very fragile place where they are constantly surrounded by warfare and having their very way of life taken away from them. Would it surprise anyone to realize that this was the perfect breeding ground for insurrection? But what exactly was the inciting event that would lead to the Maccabean Revolt? Even though I did say that the Book of First Maccabees is non-canonical in the Jewish faith, which I'd like to honor for the most part within this narrative, it gives us a decent explanation of how things started out. Also, biblical texts aren't copyrighted so I can use as much as I want. So let's go with the beginning of First Maccabees. Alexander had reigned 12 years when he died, so his officers took over his kingdom, each in his own territory, and after his death they all put on diadems, and so did their sons after them for many years, multiplying evils on the earth. There sprang from these a sinful offshoot, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus, once a hostage at Rome. He became king in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days, there appeared in Israel transgressors of the law who seduced many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles all around us. Since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us. The proposal was agreeable. Some from among the people promptly went to the king, and he authorized them to introduce the ordinances of the Gentiles. Thereupon, they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom. They disguised their circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They allied themselves with the Gentiles and sold themselves to wrongdoing. After Antiochus had defeated Egypt in the 143rd year, he returned and went up against Israel and against Jerusalem with a strong force. 
he insolently entered the sanctuary and took away the golden altar, the lampstand for the light with all its utensils, the offering table, the cups and bowls, the gold censers, and the curtains. The cornices and the golden ornaments on the facade of the temple, he stripped it all off, and he took away the silver and gold and the precious vessels. He also took all the hidden treasures he could find. Taking all this, he went back to his own country. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance, and there was great mourning throughout all Israel. This passage, which was taken from the first couple of chapters of 1st Maccabees, by the way, details the change from Judea maintaining some level of independence to coming under the thumb of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Though the passage makes it seem like it was Antiochus himself who really started making things hell for the Jews, it was actually a man he placed in charge as the high priest of Israel, Jason. Jason was a Hebrew man who was actually born with the name Yeshua, which is a Hebrew name from which we get the English names Joshua and Jesus. So technically you could be correct in calling him Josh Christ, it's just sacrilegious I guess? Many Jews who accepted Hellenization usually took on a Hellenized form of their Hebrew name, hence why Yeshua became Jason, pronounced Yason in Greek. Jason's brother had been the previous high priest of Israel, but was forced out of the position by Antiochus. Contradicting sources cite this move as either Antiochus preferring the more Hellenized Jason to his brother Aeneas, or that Jason bribed his way into the position. It was probably a bit of both, let's be honest. When he became high priest in 175 BCE, Jason immediately got underway Hellenizing Jerusalem. He had a gymnasium and other Greek city staples set up around the sacred city. He would even send Jewish athletes to compete in a Seleucid version of the Olympics. When he sent those athletes, he also happened to send quite a bit of money as an offer to the demigod Heracles, aka Hercules, the patron god of the games. However, one of his most egregious offenses to the Jews of Jerusalem was allowing Greek Seleucids to set up idols to the Greek gods within the Second Temple. Whether it was in hopes for change or just another greedy offer, a man named Menelaus eventually approached Antiochus IV in 171 BCE and outbid Jason for the position of High Priest of Israel. Antiochus said screw it and kicked Jason out of the position to bring in new loyal blood. Jason originally ran away from Jerusalem, but eventually returned when he heard a horrific rumor. Antiochus had been killed when he went off to fight against a war against Ptolemaic Egypt. Spoiler alert, Antiochus wasn't actually dead. Jason gathered forces that were still loyal to him and marched on Jerusalem, hoping to unseat Menelaus. Menelaus was actually unpopular as he was even more pro-Greek than Jason, so Jason managed to get back in power, though his coup had sparked much fighting throughout Judea. Well, when the still very much alive Antiochus heard about the fighting in Judea, he took that as a personal offense against himself. Antiochus marched his army on Jerusalem. From 168 to 167, Antiochus brought hell to the Jews, enslaving and killing many. Jason managed to flee before he was captured by the Ptolemies and eventually exiled himself to Sparta back in Greece. Meanwhile, Antiochus really began putting his foot down when it came to the Hellenization of Judea. He appointed Greek officials to oversee the city and its operations. 
Antiochus issued laws that would suppress religious practices among the Jews. He even converted the second temple into a temple to Zeus and anointed it by spilling pig's blood in the temple, something that is considered highly sacrilegious in Judaism due to the laws given by God in the Torah. The more Hellenized people of Judea fell in line. But those that wished to proudly practice their faith would not go down easily. And one family from the outskirts of Jerusalem soon found themselves as the leaders of a new revolution against the Seleucids. Judah Maccabeus, also called Judas or Yehuda, and his four brothers were the sons of Mattathias the Hasmonean, a Jewish priest in the Jewish city of Modin. The revolution against the Seleucids would actually begin with Mattathias himself. In 167 BCE, the Seleucid governor of Judea ordered that an altar to the Greek gods should be erected in Modin. Since Mattathias was a priest and therefore a well-respected member of his community, the Seleucid officials in Modin ordered that he be the one to consecrate the altar with a sacrifice to the gods. Being the devout man that he was, Mattathias refused, even when he was told that following orders would put him in the good graces of Antiochus. When the Hasmonean still refused, another Jewish man in the town stepped forward to initiate the sacrifice. Mattathias immediately turned on the man and killed him before he could complete the ritual. For good measure, he also killed one of the Seleucid officials. Needless to say, things got bad very quickly for the Hasmonean family. Mattathias and his sons fled into the nearby mountains in order to escape imprisonment and death. Other Orthodox Jews who refused to convert to Seleucid ways joined the family and they became known as the Hasidians. But instead of directing their anger towards the Seleucids, the original targets of the revolt were actually the Hellenized Jews. Now, their actions against Hellenized Jews were somewhat extreme considering that the Hasmoneans and the Hasidians weren't killing people for the most part. Then again, we're predating the Geneva Conventions by over 2,000 years. Besides chasing Hellenized Jews out of their towns and destroying Greek altars, the revolters would also forcibly circumcise any Hellenized Jewish boys they came across. But Mattathias and his sons knew that they couldn't win a war against Seleucid ideals with religious tolerance and nonviolence. They would have to compromise their beliefs if they wished to see true Jewish freedom return to their homeland. Along this path, they even fought on the Sabbath. Considering that work was illegal on the Sabbath, waging war would have been considered unthinkable. But these were unprecedented times in Judea. Mattathias would pass away in 166 BCE, just a year after the revolt began. Leadership of the revolution fell upon Judah, who by this point had become a legendary warrior among the revolutionaries. People even started calling him Judah Maccabeus. The common interpretation about the name Maccabeus is that it is taken from the Aramaic Maccaba, meaning hammer, to denote Judah's prowess in battle. Other interpretations say that it is an acronym from the Maccabean war cry, and I will try my best with the Hebrew here, Mi Kamocha Ba'alim Adonai, meaning who among the gods is like you Adonai. One final interpretation says that it comes from the phrase Maccab Yahu, meaning the one designated by God. Whatever the actual meaning for the surname is, that name was eventually given to the revolution as a whole. They were now known as the Maccabees. 
It didn't take long before Apollonius, the Seleucid governor of Jerusalem, decided he couldn't sit back and continue to let the Maccabees destroy Greek influence in Judea. He gathered an army of 2,000 men from Samaria, the nation that bordered Judea to the north. It's also where we get the term Samaritan, which was the demonym of people of Samaria. Unfortunately for the Seleucid soldiers of Samaria, who had been trained in classical Macedonian warfare strategies, they were to fight the Maccabees in the mountains of Judea. Macedonian warfare called for a phalanx, a tight formation of soldiers with very long spears and shields that had allowed Alexander the Great to win many, many battles. Well, phalanxes don't really hold up in uneven terrain. With only 600 fighters at his disposal, Judah managed to defeat the Seleucid army, even killing Apollonius during the battle and claiming his sword in victory. The battle was known as the Battle of the Ascent of Labona. The next year, in 165 BCE, Judah led yet another small contingency against a much larger Seleucid faction at the Battle of Beth Horon. A group of Seleucids were marching south from Syria in order to put down the Maccabees. In order to reach Judea, they would have to pass through the Beth Horon mountain pass. Borrowing the tactics of Leonidas and the Spartans, Judah held the very narrow passage and managed to defeat the Seleucids. Though whether his soldiers defeated the entire contingency or just a small group that had broken away from the main army remains up for debate. Later in the year, Antiochus was forced to march east with his army to put down an invasion by his eastern neighbor, the Parthian Empire. He left the Maccabean Revolt in the hands of the governor of Syria, a man named Lysias. Unfortunately, Antiochus's march east left Lysias with less resources than he would need. That being said, he still gathered an army of 10,000 soldiers and had them march into Judea. The Seleucids set up camp near the town of Emmaus. Hearing of this new army, Judah and 3,000 Maccabees posted up at the neighboring town of Mizpah. And it's here that I want to say that there are multiple historical sources for the Battle of Emmaus, and I'm actually including the Bible in this list, which is weird. What's even weirder is that Jewish scholars seem to agree that the account listed in 1st Maccabees is probably the most historically accurate, and the writer of the book possibly even was an eyewitness of the battle. So I would just quote the Bible here, but the passage is a bit long. So, hey, maybe you can just read that in your free time. Yes, this one time I will tell you that you should read the Bible. So let's sum up that Bible passage. One of the Seleucid generals, a man named Gorgias, caught word of the Maccabees' position from Hellenized Jews in the area. He decided to take a substantial portion of his army to Mizpah, hoping to surprise the Maccabees. Unfortunately, the Seleucid army was heavily armored, meaning they were very slow. So, soon enough, word of their approach reached Judah, and he ordered his soldiers to abandon the town and skirt around the main road between Mizpah and Emmaus to avoid Gorgias and the Seleucids. When they reached the main camp of the Seleucids, the Maccabees burned down the camp and killed many of their enemy. When Gorgias arrived at an empty Mizpah, he angrily turned around and marched back to Emmaus, where he found his comrades dead. Deeply demoralized, Gorgias' army fled west to avoid further fights against the Maccabees. Fearing the growing power of the Maccabees, Menelaus, who was still the high priest of Jerusalem despite everything, and several other Seleucid officials decided to parley with Judah and his brothers. 
The pro-Seleucid faction offered to repeal some of the anti-Jewish laws in order to alleviate anti-Seleucid sentiments. Unfortunately, the Maccabees would stand for nothing less than the complete removal of Greek influence on Judea. With any sense of compromise out the window, the fighting continued. Until, in 164 BCE, word reached Judea that Antiochus IV Epiphanes had passed away. With Antiochus IV dead, his son Antiochus V Eupater, Eupater being Greek for from a good father, which is rather ironic for this story, took the throne as king of the Seleucids. One problem with that, Antiochus V was less than 10 years old when he was crowned. In normal royal fashion, he was instead led by a group of advisors. Politicians from all over the empire flocked to the capital of Antioch in order to try to get their ideas and influence ingrained within the boy king. One such politician was Lysias, the guy who was supposed to be putting down the Maccabean revolt. Well, with the main political power in the general region gone, Judah and the Maccabees marched straight into Jerusalem. This was made much easier due to the fact that Apollonius, the former governor and military leader of Judea, had knocked down the walls to the city. With no one to protect them from the avenging army, the Hellenized Jews and Seleucids still within Jerusalem fled the city. A group of Seleucid soldiers had housed themselves in the Jerusalem garrison and would remain there for a few more years, but with most of his opposition gone, Judah and his brothers entered the second temple on the 25th of the Jewish month Kislev, which coordinated with December 14th, 164 BCE. Judah destroyed the altar that had been erected in the honor of Zeus and other Greek idolatry was also removed. The Maccabees sought to rededicate the temple which had been deified back when Antiochus had pig's blood spilled in it. As the famous story goes, they sought to light the menorah that was within the temple. Unfortunately, most of the oil that could have been used was tampered with so that it was unfit for the rededication ceremony. There was only enough oil to keep the menorah lit for one night. Despite this setback, the menorah was still lit. And it burned and burned, and burned for eight days rather than just one night. It was considered a miracle given to the Maccabees by God himself. For that reason, Judah ordered that every year, starting on the evening of the 25th of Kislev, the Jewish people would hold an eight-day celebration. In the earliest Jewish histories we have, the celebration was simply referred to as the Festival of Lights. However, we obviously now know this holiday as Hanukkah. The word Hanukkah comes from the Hebrew root word meaning to dedicate. The Maccabees had taken back what was stolen from them. They had regained control of Jerusalem and rededicated the second temple. Unfortunately, peace had still not been achieved. Judah and his brothers continued their war against the Seleucids. In one of the battles, one of Judah's brothers was killed by a war elephant, though he was only killed because he was crushed by the very elephant he had killed. Eventually, Lysias returned to Judea and agreed to repeal more laws that had suppressed the Jewish people before heading back north to engage in political games against his rivals. Eventually, one of Lysias' rivals killed Antiochus V and Lysias. 
This rival, Demetrius, crowned himself as Demetrius I Soter, and he proved to be even worse than Antiochus IV. Looking for a new ally that could hopefully help him against the Seleucids, in 161 BCE, Judah turned to the Roman Republic. After correspondence traveled back and forth between Judea and Rome, the latter eventually recognized Judah as the leader of an independent nation. Since this version of Rome was not really the big-time ancient Rome as we know of it today, this didn't have too much of an effect on the Seleucids. Instead, in April of 160 BCE, Demetrius decided to send a massive army into Judea in order to squash the Maccabees. In a bizarre change of pace, Judah decided to meet this army head-on instead of using his usual guerrilla tactics. It was to be known as the Battle of Elasa. The Maccabees were heavily outnumbered and were now also forced to face the full might of the Macedonian phalanx. The Maccabees were routed and Judah was killed in the conflict. His brother Jonathan, also known in English as Jonathan Aphis, was declared the new leader of the Maccabees as he had also been declared high priest of Jerusalem by Judah during the original Hanukkah celebration. Jonathan continued fighting against the Seleucids who, after killing Judah, had marched on Jerusalem and retook the city. After more fighting, Jonathan entered a ceasefire with one of Demetrius's generals who agreed to pull his armies out of Judea. And though it now seemed like things might be moving in favor of the Maccabees, they were still under constant pressure by the Hellenized Jews and the Seleucids. It would take about two more decades before the Seleucid Empire began to experience internal conflict and started to implode. During this time, Jonathan allied himself with Demetrius's political rival Alexander Ballas, who would eventually succeed to the throne of the empire. Alexander officially reinstated Jonathan as the head priest of Jerusalem and allowed the Maccabees to rule semi-autonomously. They would not achieve true autonomy until after Jonathan's death when his brother Simon, also called Simon Thassi, was elected as the new leader and high priest of his people. With further recognition, Simon and his successors became known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Though the dynasty's territory was originally a small area around Jerusalem, they would eventually grow to occupy territory throughout all of modern-day Israel, Palestine, and parts of Jordan. But the Hasmoneans did not remain in peace. In a bitter twist of irony, even though it was the first nation to recognize the Hasmoneans as legitimate rulers, Rome would eventually take hold of the Hasmonean kingdom and turn it into one of the Roman Republic's many client states in 63 BCE. And surprise, Julius Caesar and his gang are gonna pop in the story for just a brief moment. One of Caesar's allies was Herod, Herod the Great, Biblical Herod, the guy I mentioned earlier who would refurbish the Second Temple, who made use of his close relationship with Rome and its leaders to wage war against the Hasmonean king Antigonus. After several years of fighting, Herod defeated Antigonus and brought an end to the Hasmonean kingdom. Though the Maccabees and Hasmoneans have been gone for over two millennia, their powerful legacy has not died, especially when it comes to Hanukkah, so let's talk more about that. The holiday itself was not actually regularly celebrated until centuries after the original rededication of the Second Temple. 
Also, in the early days of Hanukkah being celebrated, the early CE Jewish rabbis wanted to tone down the history of the holiday as also celebrating victory in war over the Seleucids. In this sense, the lighting of the menorah and other traditional rituals of the holiday were meant to symbolize the miracles of God and create more of a reliance on his protection. Unfortunately, like most of history, the Jewish people were in a very delicate position after the Romans exiled them from Judea in the 1st century CE. The rabbis did not want the Jewish people thinking they could just start another revolt, especially against the war machine that was early Rome. So Hanukkah slowly began developing into something closer to how it is traditionally celebrated in modern times. The holiday itself differs from other Jewish holidays and days of remembrance, such as Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, which would require you to abstain from work and other activities that are normally prohibited to do on the Sabbath. Obviously, in modern times, this is due to the fact that Judaism is usually a minority religion in most nations, so it's not likely that your job is going to give you the days off for free unless you work for a Jewish company. However, in Israel, they usually close schools for most of the eight days. Obviously, the most important tradition of the holiday is the lighting of the menorah. Now, different traditions hold different ways that you are supposed to light the menorah, but the most common way to do it is by lighting an additional candle each evening during the eight days. And you're usually supposed to display the menorah in an open window, though obviously this has only been possible during periods of history where it was okay to openly practice Judaism. Other traditions include singing traditional Hanukkah songs or reciting psalms, eating traditional Hanukkah time foods, which are usually cooked or fried in olive oil to symbolize the miracle of the original holiday, such as latkes and sufganiyot, the spinning of the dreidel, and children receiving what is called a Hanukkah gelt, which is usually a small amount of money that is given along with the spinning of the dreidel. I've heard that children apparently gamble with each other for the gelt, so, you know, fun, I guess? In more recent times, Hanukkah, especially in America, has undergone a shift to almost become the Jewish analog to Christmas. Obviously, Jewish families, I'll say for the most part because I don't know every Jewish family in America, don't celebrate Christmas even if the holiday has kinda slightly moved away from its traditional Christian background in America. Yes, I know about the whole war on Christmas thing, no, we're not gonna talk about it here. So Jewish children can also get in on the wintertime gift-giving trend, it has become more common for Jewish families to exchange gifts during Hanukkah. Some sources say this tradition started as far back as the 19th century, but it especially became more common during the latter half of the 20th century. But again, Hanukkah is not Jewish Christmas. There actually is a Jewish holiday, Purim, where it is traditional to exchange presents, but, at least in the eye of the Gentile population, that gift-giving holiday has been eclipsed by Hanukkah. I hope you've learned quite a bit about some history and more modern traditions in this episode. I think the stories of the Maccabees is really interesting to learn in terms of both as a historical event and as a major victory in the background of Judaism. In modern times, Judah and his family have a bit of a mixed reception for the same reason earlier rabbis were hesitant to go all out on remembering a revolt against a powerful empire. Do you praise the Maccabees for going to war? Do you make the miracle of Hanukkah more about God? Is it even right to praise the Maccabees considering they did some pretty horrific things to the Hellenized Jews, even if it was in the name of religious freedom? 
whatever your feelings are, I wish everyone who is celebrating the holiday a happy Hanukkah. And if you know anyone who's celebrating, it's okay to say have a happy Hanukkah or just have a happy holiday. Maybe even try saying it in Hebrew. I would here, but I'm sure I've butchered enough Hebrew throughout the entire episode. I know this episode is coming out at the very end of the holiday this year, so I hope everyone who celebrated did have a happy Hanukkah. And to everyone still celebrating winter festivities in the coming days and weeks, happy holidays. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're finally going to cover a president of the United States. Who will it be? George Washington? Abraham Lincoln? No, of course not. We're covering a man who is perhaps one of the most divisive men to ever be elected. No, not that one. We're talking about Andrew Jackson. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 